This is Powers on Policing, the podcast that presents an inside look at the dedicated people who work in the criminal justice system. Your host is Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Hello, I'm Jordan Rich, and I have the honor of producing this podcast with Bill Powers. And like you, I get the chance to meet outstanding law enforcement professionals. This is part two of our interview with Kristen Zeman, a distinguished career in policing in which she rose in rank from cadet to chief. Kristen is the author of the book, Reimagining Blue, Thoughts on Life, Leadership, and a New Way Forward in Policing. And her website is her name, kristenzeman.com. To kick off this episode, Bill and Kristen share their thoughts on the importance placed on education for the proud men and women in blue across this country, serving and protecting their communities. Yeah, in fact, uh, right before I retired, we had a group of recruits that came in, and uh, I think there were 10 or 11 recruits, and over half of them had master's degrees, a few of them in finance, and things that you wouldn't even think of. So I think, you know, and you mentioned, you know, some of the my my education early on. I have to tell you, this has been, you know, the, the argument uh, for as long as I can remember, you know, is do we need to have higher education requirements for law enforcement, you know, or does, quote, street smart matter? And the truth is, is, is both are, are good. You know, I think that's what makes a well-rounded police department. But for me, uh, I my father didn't have any formal education as a cop, and my parents didn't put any emphasis uh, on me on education, uh, no pressure whatsoever. And so I didn't value it as some of my friends in different households that said you have to go to college and, and you know, you have to get that degree. Agree. That actually came to me later because I was, admittedly, don't tell my kids this, uh, but I was a terrible student in high school because I wasn't interested in anything. And then when I, at 17, when I went and, you know, had to go, the, the police department sent me to get my associate's degree in criminal justice, that's when I lit up and I thought, oh my gosh, I want to soak this in like a sponge. And because it was a subject matter that I, I fell in love with and I was passionate about, well then, you know, I once I got my associate degree that was required of me, I went on to to get my bachelor's degree on my own volition and then I was addicted to it and you know and got went on to get two more master's degrees so for me education you know so I think that there's there's all kinds of conversations we can have about education in law enforcement and there are no wrong answers when I tell people about my high school growing up I got kept back in the seventh grade before I got to high school and then I barely get out of high school and they said so you're overachieving and I said no I was underachieving at that point in my life because I didn't I didn't see the need for an education for a police officer and, and my uh, unlike yours my father and mother were extremely on me all the time about my education I just kept kicking it to the curb and and maybe what it took for me was to go through you know a rigorous academy uh, where I was challenged every hour of every day to realize you know what I can do this I can I can go back to college I can finish up and then as it, it took me into law school, but it, it never in a million years would I have thought about that. But my background in policing showed me that that's where I needed to be. And like you, I soaked it up like a sponge, and I loved every every day of that. But you're right. The things that are being asked of police officers today, particularly when it comes to mental health, you know, de-escalation, that requires a tremendous amount of learning. And you, you can't just deem us to be in charge of that when we don't know what we don't know. And yet, at the same time, in Massachusetts, I can't speak for the rest of the country, a GED is all you need to become a police officer. And I'm not knocking GEDs because there's an awful lot of guys that got GEDs, went in the military and came out, and they're fine police officers. But as far as continuing training, there's no incentive for it. 
You're absolutely right. Yeah, and and let's you know make the distinction here that you know it doesn't even require perhaps you know higher learning um, you know with a degree, but just the mm-hmm. fact that you're constantly committing yourself to improvement. So whether that is taking classes, reading books, listening to podcasts like this yes. one, you know, or going towards formal education. If you had to, you know, if you ask me to pick a side, I won't be a fence sitter here. I will say that I believe actually you know getting uh, you know more advanced training and higher degrees actually does it does help because that's where I learned to hold two different philosophies you know two different hypotheses you know and to say okay so it's not just the way I think there are many other uh, you know methods to which you can tackle this problem so that's what higher education taught me and I think that there's always a place for that it's good for everybody because you're in a classroom with people that aren't police officers and when your views are expressed you're learning from them and they're learning from you mm-hmm. and and that is, that to me is maybe the best of all of my education was what I learned from other people so as bad as a high school student as I was with my report card, I learned cultural difference. I learned how to talk to people. I learned how to network with people. All of those things that have served me so well in my life, but that's from the interaction with other people, and that's what education brings you to the table for. Oh, you are so right. That is absolutely right. We learn so much from other people sitting in the classroom with us. Good mm-hmm. point. Yeah. As a segue, may I just quote Kristen, culture eats policy for breakfast. That's right. <laughs> That's on your website, and uh, your website is your name, kristenzeman.com, uh, leadership coaching uh, of the highest order. What do you mean by culture eating policy for breakfast in serious? Uh, great example of this is in every policy, in every police department, uh, you will see some general order or policy that states thou shalt not commit excessive force. Uh, not exactly in those words. It's, it's much, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's much longer than that. Uh, but then let's, you know, say that there are police departments that celebrate that in the locker room, you know, high-fiving. And that's what I mean by culture is that what you celebrate, what you um, allow to happen, whether you are allowing it standing next to your peers or whether you're a supervisor that is allowing it to happen is that it doesn't matter what the policy says. It's what, you know, it's what our culture uh, in every culture, by the way, is different. And there are great things about our cultures, positive things, but there are also very negative things about the culture, you know, perhaps if you uh, look away, you know, and say, I didn't see anything instead of intervening when you know an officer, a comrade is doing something, um, you know, that is is not going to put the department in the most favorable light and you look away or say, I didn't see anything. That's what I mean by culture, even though a policy might say otherwise. And that's one of the interesting things in so many states when the police reform came in. Part of that is the see something, say something. In many states, it's part of statute law now that a police officer, if they are witness to something like, and again, it's coming from the George Floyd incident. If you see something and you don't react to it um, in the in the, in the the positive way. In Massachusetts, you will lose your job. It's done. They, they just put your license and you can't be a police officer anywhere. And that was something that historically, like you said, you know, something might happen and you, you turn your back to it. You turn your back to it now, you don't work anymore. It really has had a huge impact that maybe we could have done a better job with through the years and would needed to have it put on us, but that's the way it is now. And and what I love about about talking to academy kids now, they um they're fine with it. You know what I mean? They 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 they're yeah. coming on now. They're fine with body cameras. They're fine with all of that stuff, which is fabulous for the future of law enforcement. But what used to be, you could turn your back on things. That's not the case anymore. That's right. I was very fortunate to have a chief uh, that was uh, a. That re- 
my, I was his successor and it was from him. I learned about accountability. There was a, we had an officer, uh, that was, uh, charged with slamming, uh, someone in handcuffs, slamming their head on the hood of a car. And that, as you can imagine, that it was captured on video. Uh, so that individual, uh, uh, I think incurred a 90 day suspension, but there was an officer on the scene and on the video, you watched this officer on video watching this happen. And then during his interview, he said, I didn't see a thing. And, and the, the chief fired that guy that lied about, uh, about seeing it. And so that was a message sent. And that's what I mean about culture is that that culture of accountability is set from the top. And, you know, and the rest of the department learned very quickly that, you know, we're not going to cover up for anyone's wrongdoing. No, Oh, it, it's that great moment of, oh, okay, that's what you meant. And from that, it never happens again because you understand that's what the right. consequences are going to be. So I want to change gears just a little bit, I, I, and I want to talk about leadership because it's going to segue into, into something else. You have your style. I have my style. Jordan has his style. Everybody develops a style when it, when it comes to leadership. We've read all the books. We've watched the videos. We've had, we've had lectures come in. You're doing it now. I've done it. So, you know, we're teaching about it from the, the way that, that we learned it. How was it for you? How did you come about learning to be a leader? Well, this, I would say learning is a great uh, verb to use because I, I look at leadership as this unattainable summit. It's this thing that, that I keep striving for. I slip, I fall, you know, I get back on the mountain. I, I try to reach that level, which we, you know, we consider level five leadership, you know? Um, and to me, it's, it's just absolutely unattainable. I'm a, I'm a student of leadership, but sadly the leadership lessons and, and what has made me the leader I am today, um, is, is, or at least uh, trying to attain any kind of leadership um, success, has been sadly uh, by watching what not to do. You know, I remember as a young officer, you know, some of my sergeants saying, listen, kid, uh, you know, eight hour shift, don't bother me. You know, I don't want to hear from you. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, well, if I have a question, you know, what, what do I do? And, and I remember thinking to myself, Never, if I ever get into a position where I have stripes on my sleeve, never will I tell any of my officers not to bother me. That's my job. And so I watched and learned. And I also remember what it felt like to work for great leaders. And we all know what I'm talking about here. It's those leaders that make you want to do the very best that you can because you don't want to let them down. I've had that feeling as well. And those are the characteristics. And I take them from many different people. I don't have just one person I emulate. I try to take these qualities, these positive qualities uh, from all different individuals and try to learn and apply that to my leadership role. And that has been my journey in leadership throughout my life. I couldn't agree with you more. And when you're talking to classes and about it, you point out all the times that you, you made mistakes and, and you failed. I've had some unbelievable mentors that I've taken some, some things from, but I've also at times said, do that, be that guy, don't be that guy. I have, like you, different people that I, I listen to that I, I love to listen to, and one being Simon Sinek. And he has that great line, be the leader you always wish you had. So just like you, you know, don't be that guy on the overtime clock. Don't be the guy that's doing this and don't be that guy. And, and that's how you be. You, then you get the respect because you also realize you didn't respect 
your sergeant, your lieutenant for doing that. You know that if you do the same thing, you're not going to be respected. It isn't absolutely isn't the and respect I'll, I'll about take it. it. Oh, it is. I, I mean, what's the 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 old adage, right? That you know, as a leader, should you want to be uh, loved or feared? And you know, a, a leader who wants to be loved is not going to make courageous decisions uh, because they don't want to upset people. Um, a leader that is feared, uh, that's great because you can buy a person's back, but that's it's just for a very short term. You know, people are going to do things because they're afraid of you or they're afraid of getting in trouble. You know, and I always say you can buy their back, but you cannot buy their heart. And I think, honestly, the answer is uh, neither. A leader should want to be respected and not loved or feared. And respected, though, means that there are going to be times where you disappoint people with your decisions. And that's part of leadership. That's why it's not for the faint of heart is that, you know, you're going to upset people. And I always looked at that when I got into the big chair. I said, you know, I've got to make a decision here that's going to upset, you know, probably half my police department, whether it's a policy or just some kind of implementation of a process. And and good leaders, as long as they're doing the right thing uh, for the organization, uh, they're going to have to get comfortable with that. To be a good leader, at some point, you had to be a good follower. And even as a leader, you ha- we all have bosses. So you may be the chief of police, but you answer to the mayor or you answer to the board of selectmen. And you have to follow. And so you have to carry out those rules and not like, well, you know why we're doing this? It's because they told me to. You know, they're all jerks over there. You don't. That's not, that's not being a good leader. A good leader isn't throwing it off on somebody else. It's standing up and saying, this is why we're going to do it. And one of the things I learned towards the end of my career, and I wish, you know, but this is why life is, you know, lived forward and understood backward, is that I learned... Uh, at, at, at particular times, even though I had the stars on my collar, there were several times throughout you know my tenure where I looked at my officers and said, uh, I don't know what to do. Well, I'd never lived through a pandemic. I didn't know how to lead through it. And so I, I looked at my officers and said, help me. Let's not fail. You know, we've got to figure this out together. And I think sometimes leaders often believe, uh, which is a misnomer, that they have to know everything. And I think that in those moments of, uh, I'm going to say, the word, the V word, but in those moments of vulnerability, you know, I think sometimes building trust is, is looking at your people and saying, I don't have the answer here, help me out. You know, and even more importantly, when you mess up or make a bad decision, uh, I have learned that just by by owning it and, you know, an apology has three parts. I'm sorry, I was wrong, and what can I do to fix it? And that, to me, also, you know, builds trust in, in leaders. Yeah, I call it situational humility. I don't know what I don't know. Please help me get mm. through this. Yeah. I need, it's, it's not about me, it's about us and how we're going to make this thing work. And I, I, I yeah. found whenever you do that, these people that are now part of the process, they, they want to be part and they can't help you enough. I know how great a leader you became and, and how the, the people on your department followed your, your philosophies. And then a few years ago, particularly in February of 2019, you got hit with something that Hopefully nobody else gets hit with, but they will. We know they will. It's happened before you. It'll happen, and it's happened since you. The murder of the five people at the Henry Pratt Company, as well as the injuries to your officers, who, as you said earlier, ran to the guns to neutralize the, the shooter and uh, and move forward. And you, as the chief, and how you had to deal with that. Ooh, that was the worst day of my professional career, but I'm going to take it back a step. Uh, and I'm going to say that I just happened to be the chief during the time that this happened. Uh, the, the, when, when people say, you know, I led my police department through this, um, I actually, I had like a visceral reaction. Um, 
but but here's what I will take credit for is that I I at the beginning of my tenure in 2016 and this happened three years later I sat down with my SWAT commander and uh, lieutenant and said are we prepared for the boogeyman whatever the unthinkable that is lurking at our doorstep are we prepared and the answer that i got was a resounding no they said that our equipment is expired we lack the training we need to add more training for our swat team and for the department as a whole and i said let's get this done and so i listened to those people who are operationally astute. Uh, I've never been on that that trajectory in my career. I was, you know, aside from being in patrol, I'm not, you know, I wasn't big in, 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 a, in the tactical aspect. So I relied on those subject matter experts to tell me what we needed. And I put those people in positions because they are better than I am in every regard. And they got us ready. Our training division and that, uh, that lieutenant, they prepared our police department for what would happen three years later. And so, you know, it's interesting how the credit goes to the person who is running the organization. But uh, it's actually, I, I, that is a major pivot for me. It's, uh, again, I'll take credit for putting the right people in the right positions and then getting the hell out of their way. Uh, but then on the day that this mass shooting happened, my officers performed heroically because they had been trained to do though. They, they played like they practiced. Um, and it was, as I, I said, the worst day in my professional career because as I was en route to the scene, I heard the officers saying over the radio, I'm shot, I'm hit, and one after another as they were pursuing the, the shooter who was on a rampage, already killed five people in a workplace shooting, and, and then set his sights onto uh, ambushing the police officers that showed up, and it didn't matter. They took bullets, and they still continued to pursue the shooter. Uh, and then, you know, when the, the dust settles, by that I mean the shooter was killed. Uh, the shooter opened fire on, on the SWAT team that went in. Uh, SWAT team returned fire, killing the shooter. So, you know, the scene is secure, um, but now that's when the real, you know, when, when all the action begins. I didn't know if my officers were alive or dead at that time. You know, I was on the perimeter, you know, as incident commander trying to manage our resources while they were, um, you know, on the front lines. And so um, we lost five people that day that were employees of the, of the manufacturing plant, and five of my officers were shot, and uh, by the grace of God, they all survived. Uh, but um, those emotional wounds, I can tell you, are still not healed. You just explained in a couple of minutes what makes you a great leader when people are looking for what leaders look like. They look like you because you had your people prepared for that moment. You know what I mean? It's not as though on that moment it came and you said, oh, I'm the mm -hmm. chief. I gotta, what am I going to do here? Mm -hmm. You had already laid the groundwork and prepared everybody. They prepared. I, I get they're the ones that are teaching the, the shooting. They're the ones that are teaching you know, all of our tactics, et cetera. With a different chief, that might not have happened. That's what I mean about it. And I'm not I, – I hope you don't feel like I'm pumping your sunshine because I'm not <laughs> at, at all. Because it, it, it is. It, it's the definition of a leader. We don't realize it necessarily as we're going along. But you can't be that person on that day that said, oh – you know, point to your shoulders or point to your sleeve and say, you got it here, you got, you know, I'm the boss, but you don't know what you're doing. You have no clue because you didn't take the time to learn about when, mm. what happens when something like this happens. And the other part that goes way beyond what happened that day is the next day or later that day when you meet with the families of the, the five victims and you meet with the families of your officers and you meet with the rest of your officers and they expect you to stand in front of a microphone and talk about everything and, and not be emotional. You mm. were well prepared and you handled that perfectly. 
Yeah, and I would say that was also probably a, a misstep on my part, you know, at least after the fact is that, you know, I I had done a great job talking about, you know, the officers and, and I made sure that we had mental health professionals on the scene. Um, and yet I was so busy making sure that they were getting everything that they needed. And I thought it was my job, you know, to not fall apart. And, and I, I realize now that I should have in those moments gotten the help I needed because it, it came crashing down on me several weeks later when I finally fell apart, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we as leaders, you know, not only do we have to, we've got to walk that talk as well and make sure that we're setting an example, you know, especially when it comes to mental health. It's an immense skill set, and we see it on the national scale when presidents or people in power, we hope that they'll step up to the plate and provide solace for the grieving. Not everyone can do that. It's very evident in today's world, but uh, we give you credit. I had a point to make about leadership, too, and that is, to me, a civilian, I look at every police officer as a leader. I respect police officers, patrolmen, patrolwomen, anybody out there on the force. So in a sense, you're the leader of leaders, and that's a different kind of hierarchy than in some traditional businesses. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I do. I love what what you're saying there because, I mean, that, you know, speaks to the notion that, you know, we have to be there for our people. And, you know, we've charged them with the care and keeping of the community. And so, you know, it behooves us to also build them into leaders, you know, and this is, uh, I, I, Jocko Willick is uh, famous for for saying that is that you need to create leaders around you so that you are not the only you know person who's making a decision. The best thing that you can do is build leaders around you that are capable and competent of making decisions, so you don't have to keep running things up the flagpole. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying about trusting your people. You know, you ha- you, you gotta if you're putting them in positions uh, of of supervision and authority, then you've got to trust them to do their job, and then you've got to give them the skills and the tools necessary so they can they can build that leadership role and that they can lead from right where they're standing. I've seen a big difference, too, in training. And I started training in an academy setting back in the 80s. And now there's a lot more time spent not just giving you protocols and policy and procedure. It's at a scene, you're the leader. You may have three days out of the academy and you go to a horrific accident. You're the leader. People are looking for you. You're in the uniform. You're supposed to take charge, and you're supposed to bring calm to chaos. And we never talked about that when I was in the academy. And and now that's a that's a big part of it. We do we never did practical exercises. We do constant practical exercises now. And a big part of that is taking control of a scene, taking control of a situation with empathy, but at the same time letting there be no doubt that this scene is your scene. This investigation is your investigation. And um, I, I think we're bringing people along better now than we once did. But you're right, Kristen. Is there anything better than having a leadership team around you that you've got total confidence in? That when something yeah, goes sideways, you, you know that, that the people you've got in place are the right people to be in place. And, and they have the, all the respect for you, and they're going to have your back the whole way, too. For sure. Yeah. I know we're, we're running a little bit short on time. But there were two other things that I, I, I'll just be very brief about. But one was within a year of the shooting— Clearly, you, you folks are being held in very high regard by the, by the people in your city, as you should have been. And then we get hit with COVID, and the lockdowns begin. What that does to any business, you know, as, as it were, but you're trying to run a police department. We don't get to work from home 
We don't get to call in and, and uh, or I don't, I don't know how it is in Illinois, but in this state, you have to be vaccinated. And there's anti-vaxxers on police departments. And how do you deal with them? And how do you work your way through that? And, you know, how do you keep enough people working on a shift because other people get COVID um, because they went home one night and there was COVID in the house? You had to then turn around and still be the leader of your department and still be responsible to your city's government to make sure that all the resources were, were available that, that the police department always had. Was that difficult yeah. for you? Or? Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. I mean, as, as mentioned, you know, you've got the mass shooting in 2019. And just when we started to heal from the physical wounds, you know, then the pandemic hit. And and as I mentioned earlier, I never led during a pandemic. And so that's when I stood in front of my people. And this was early on, you know, with the coronavirus where we, we didn't know. And if you recall, the CDC was coming out every other day with, you know, uh, contradicting information. And so, you know, we were trying to make sense of it all. And here I am thinking, my gosh, I have to send my police officers, you know, to these calls because as we all know, 911 calls uh, don't stop in the middle of a pandemic, uh, contrary to popular belief. And so, you know, we're sending our officers on, on, you know, these calls, putting them in danger, not knowing, you know, if this is going to be a deadly pandemic. And then that, of course, puts their family in danger. And I, I literally, this is when I stood in front of my police department and I said, I don't know the, the right answer here. Help me. And that is precisely what happened. It was even the union came together. And this was this was the, their idea. The union board said, listen, um, at the time we were working eight hour shifts and they said, why don't we go to 12 hour shifts, even though it's it, it would be outside of the contract but this is you know for an exigent circumstance let's go to 12 hour shifts we have the officers work you know three four days in a row and then give them um you know uh time off in between so they can if, if they were exposed and it was a brilliant idea it wasn't my idea but as my mantra always is the best idea wins you know and so then we started to figure out how to uh, maneuver through COVID. And you mentioned about work from home. Funny that you mentioned that because one of my detectives said, uh, this was during the time where we were doing the six foot, you know, you had to stay away mm -hmm. from everyone. And what we started to do was send people home and to work, you know, odd days. So they would be split. Well, some one of my detectives said, why don't you just set us up with VPNs? You know, we all have laptops. Why don't we just get a VPN? And why don't we work from home? And as you know, in policing, there is no, there's no such thing as work from home. And so I had a lot of people on my department say, especially at the middle management ranks that said, oh, we can't let the detectives go home. We can't trust them, you know, to get their work done. And I said, listen, you know, the only, the, the only, we have to trust them. How about we trust them until they prove otherwise? And so we did just that. We sent them home. And do you know that case closures uh, went up by 200% because they drilled down and did everything that they could from home, even closed out some cold cases that were lingering because, you know, they were able to focus on it and completely proved everyone wrong. And so there's a lesson in that too. And that, you know, in order, you know, the only way that you can trust someone is to wait for it trust them. And so we, we did that. And, you know, and so that was a lesson that came out of COVID as well, you know, and then right after we started to figure out COVID, well, that's when that little incident happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota, right. you know, and it was if somebody uh, flipped a switch and we went from hero to zero, you know, and of course the nation suffered that, that wasn't, you know, just relegated to my community, but it was a challenging three years. And so, you know, I, uh, I, I know that a good leader never leaves in the middle of a crisis. So uh, I I waited for all the dust to settle, and then I got the hell out of there and retired. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you because you can't see it, but I, I had written down on my notes 
What does it feel like to go from a hero to a zero? Because that is a phrase that we use around here. Yeah, I was I was noting that, and I said, boy, that's he just, interesting. And he just looked at me like, wow, wow. But the, yeah, I, I, again, the, the, you know, again, he, he, in one quick year, I, first of all, you as the, as the boss had to deal with it. But so does everybody else in the department. And then who do they look to? They look to you for the leadership. Yeah. And then you and then you've got to answer to the mayor's office and everybody else. And you've got street mm-hmm. rioting going on. You've got all of that stuff that, you know, unfortunately most of the country went through. And yet, you know, all of a sudden the guys that were, were being lifted up on shoulders are being looked at with disdain by the same people because they're watching social media and they're watching That's TV right. from somewhere else. That's not I'm sure you can say the same thing as we say here in Massachusetts. When was the last time you saw that happen? Never. So why are you yeah. trying to change everything that we do because because of something that happened somewhere else mm. by one yeah, individual. Right. And I don't know what cop that didn't think that he belonged in jail for what he did. Absolutely agreed. Yeah, and then and I think that's where, you know, the separation is, is we were all, we were all saying it co- with a collective voice, no, we, we don't agree with this. Right. This this man needs to go to jail. There was there was no dispute about that, but it was. It was it was the, you know, back to painting us all with a broad brush. And I had officers leave. Um, those who had maybe three, four years left uh, until retirement, but were on that bubble, uh, I had several walk into my office and say, I'm done. I can't take this anymore. I'm getting out of the profession. So uh, it pushed really good people uh, out of out of law enforcement. The old saying we have in law enforcement about firemen, you know, we usually said on the first day in the academy, if you want people to like you, become a fireman. And or the reason God created police officers is so that firemen could have heroes too, right? We, we all, we've all used it. We've all heard it. I can tell you the city of Boston and the city I live in uh, had a tremendous lateral transfer from police department to fire department. And it's like, you know what? I, I don't want this stuff in my life. I don't want to bring this home to my family. I don't want my family to have to listen to this crap every day. If I'm a firefighter, life's going to be better. So there's a yeah. there's a huge amount. And I'm, I'm going to guess it's the same nationwide. I only know, you know, what goes on here locally, but tremendous. They got to go through the fire, fire academy and all that and, you know, change their gear. But other than that, that's what's happening. That's well, what do we talk about at the ICP more than anything else. You know, recruitment and retention. And we're getting yeah, sure. crushed around here with, with the guys hit their 25-year mark where they max out on their on their, their retirement. And traditionally, they hang around for another 10 years and keep going when they could have left. Now they leave. They'd rather mow lawns than go through what, what's going on now. So, okay, can we can we change up a little bit and let's you talk about you? Oh, uh, I, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> so you, you made the decision to retire. When did the decision come along, you should write a book about leadership? So the decision to retire was, I always knew I was going to leave around 2021. That was when my son was born in 2000. And so I I, I knew that I wasn't going to stay much longer than that. Uh, The book was not uh, actually something that I had planned to do. So as I had mentioned, I went through those very tumultuous three years during my six-year tenure as chief or nearly six years. And when I, and I genuinely, I, I say that in jest about waiting for the dust to settle, but I never would have left if we were still in the middle of something. But by, by the time I retired at the end of 21, you know, we had gotten back to, you know, pretty much what I call the sense of, of normalcy. And I decided to leave. And my plan was uh, I had a few great opportunities at the federal uh, government and I was kind of kicking those around and then I thought gosh it's always been a dream of mine to you know be a chief in a major city so you know perhaps I'll pursue something like that well what ultimately happened was I I just sat quietly my that was just I just wanted to reflect on a career and I started to write 
and and in writing, I started to purge. And this was still, you know, in the what I would still call the valley where, you know, police officers were public enemy number one. And that is pretty much the first line in my book. What we had talked earlier is that I looked at my career and said, oh, my gosh, Rodney King and George Floyd. Come on. Are, are we that bad? And I started to write about it and reflect on it. And what happened was I just cracked my heart open and I just purged everything that I thought and felt about policing, the good and the bad. Um, and I tried to call balls and strikes. And that meant that I had to add a chapter on, you know, gun control. And I had to add a chapter on George Floyd. And I had to get really uncomfortable in, in speaking my truth. And what ultimately happened was a publisher, you know, picked it up and said, we love this and where you want to publish it. And I, it was funny because after I sent it to the publisher, I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And then when, you know, the first, you know, published book came out, I wanted to throw up because I thought, oh my God, this is my life that I've just purged, you know, but I had to also get very vulnerable about my dad that we talk about who was my hero, but also uh, um, sadly committed suicide. And he's the man who taught me uh, about, uh, he taught me, there's no crying in police work. He said, never let them see you sweat. Uh, never let them, you know, uh, know that what your emotions are. And that's what I believed. And, you know, I wish um, I could tell my dad now that he was wrong and that, you know, it takes courage to ask for help. But that's all what I what I purged into my book. And what resulted was surprising to me. And it's, it's very vulnerable, but it's real. And I felt like I had to tell the whole story. And it's because you showed your vulnerability that everything else written in that book rings so true. <laughs> like I said, it's, 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 about, it's about experience. It's about training. It's about education, about all that. What you do there is you pour your heart out. And I think good leaders pour their hearts out and show their vulnerabilities and then build from that. I, I wanted to read your book and did quickly. Because, and I'm not a, I'm not a, a quick reader, but it, it was fantastic. It re, I, I'm hoping everybody that listens to this goes out and buys a copy. I told you I downloaded it on Kindle. Now I'm going to buy the hardcover so I can ask you to sign it. It, it, was a, it, was a, it was a very emotional experience for you to be able to pour your heart out like that and at the same time bring it around to what, what leadership is all about. Oh, I, I appreciate that. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And now that I've sat down and, and done that, I wish, and this is, you know, those listening, you know, and it doesn't matter what profession you're in. Of course, this is, you know, mo mostly geared to law enforcement, but it's in our profession that we're taught, you know, suck it up and take the pain. And I, I, I know now how wrong that is because we see the manifestation of that in our profession and officers, uh, you know, we've got the highest suicide rate, you know, of, of any profession. We've got officers, you know, who turn to substance abuse, you know, to, to numb the things that they see on a daily basis that most people don't see in a lifetime. And now that I have had that opportunity to be vulnerable, it's something that I wish I could go back and, and redo because I used to think that vulnerability was for the weak. And, and that's what I was taught. That's how I was brought up. And now that I know that it's the cornerstone of strength is that you cannot get to confidence without walking through vulnerability. And I think it's a lesson uh, that I had to learn the hard way. I think we all have to learn it the hard way. And unfortunately, a lot, they, they don't learn it. And you certainly did. It really yells out from the book. 
And I keep talking about the book. I should mention the name of the book. It's called Reimagining Blue, Thoughts on Life, Leadership, and a New Way Forward in Policing. And we'll mention it again and again and again. But you have the book, and then you've got a blog, and you have a podcast. And I've enjoyed all three. So the name, what's the name of your podcast? It's called the Hollow Bunny Podcast, the Hollow Bunny Leadership Podcast. And it's just a funny story about that because I'm sure you've heard the term hollow suit. Uh, well, one day my podcast, the co-host and I, Chief, uh, now under Sheriff Sylvia Moyer, we were having a conversation as we often do by telephone and we were just dishing on something and someone. And, and I, you know, it's, it, this was a person who's in a leadership position um, but really didn't have the competency. And, and it was so that said, yeah, that person is a hollow bunny. And I said, what is that? And she said, you know, it's like it's like on Easter when you get that chocolate bunny and it's wrapped in that beautiful pastel foil. It's got a little bow tie, you know, and then you open it up, shiny, gorgeous. You open it up and then you take a bite of the bunny and it's hollow and it's so disappointing. And she's like, that's what it is. It's like that person has no substance, but they have a title. And I thought, this is brilliant. And that's how our podcast was born. I absolutely love it. When the first time I looked, I went, what? What the hell is that? And then when I listened to the explanation, I was like, this is the best name I've ever heard for, for a podcast or for anything. I, I refer to it here as people who are vogue on the outside and vague on the inside. But it, oh, it's I the exact same that. thing, you know? It's yeah. right up there with heroes and zeros. <laughs> heroes, that's right. I know, one, thing, I know. one thing cops learn is phrases and, and nicknames for people. And you just sit there and shake your head and say, man, how'd they think of that? But yeah, we do have a lot of that in our stuff. My final comment, you know, like I said earlier, I did my due diligence and I looked at a lot of different things. One of the things that absolutely struck me when I was looking at your blog, and I've got a blog as well, and I write about different things that have effects on us, and it, it allows us to, as you said, purge and put it all out there. But the blog that you did at the end of last year that you titled, I Have a Leadership Crush, people will tell you your blog should be about you. And what you wrote in this was who the nine people were in your life that you had leadership crushes on. And I just thought that was incredible. So, so we get to read about nine different people that have had an effect on your life. And the way that you write about them, they now have an effect on my life, even though I don't know them, even though I never work with them. I take something from each one of them because you highlighted them as opposed to you highlighting yourself. So appreciate that. It goes, yep. it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is taking the qualities from people. And listen, yep. let's plug uh, the, the guy that you already had on your podcast. But Terry Cunningham, you know, he's in my book because he I've got a leadership crush on him. I have you know, since the time he stood up in front of the IACP and apologized for the transgressions of law enforcement. And to me, that is courageous leadership. And so when, when I tell you that I will never attain a level five leader, it, it, it's I, but I will spend my life just trying to get there. It's by watching other people who, you know, I think have attained that level or have the qualities, you know, that are on that upward trajectory of attaining it. And so I try to highlight those people so other people can follow them. No, you absolutely do. And I'll tell you, as a result, there's going to be a lot of professionals out there that have crushes on you. And you can count me <laughs> at the top of the list because I've really, really been impressed. Uh, and we'll continue to be. I look forward to seeing you in October in San Diego. Uh, well, thank you so much, Bill. It has been such a pleasure talking with you and you as well, Jordan. I appreciate the opportunity. Bill Powers and I want to thank Kristen Zeman for joining us. Her website, Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, Zeman, Z-I-M-A-N. Read about her amazing life and career in her new book, Reimagining Blue, Thoughts on Life, Leadership, and a New Way Forward in Policing. 
You've been listening to Powers on Policing with Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Please subscribe and download this podcast available on all platforms, and we would greatly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Find out more at powersonpolicing.com.